Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 26. Uh, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 26. The podcast is officially old enough to have rented a car for a year. <laughs> Older than Jesus when he died? How old was Jesus when he died? Um, hmm. <laughs> Isn't that 33? Or is it 23? No idea. I feel confident it's one of those two. Because it's like, it's my Jesus year. I'm leaning toward 23, because I feel like that's the same age a lot of famous musicians died. No, that's 27. Well. Get your handheld computer. We are computer. on a computer. <laughs> and I'm holding a computer in my hand. <laughs> How old was Jesus? I, I do not trust that that's the first <laughs> Google suggestion. What does it say? Listener, you can't see this, but I typed in how old was, and Jesus is the first suggestion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's listening to you, obviously. Drum roll. 33. 33? Oh, you're good. I mean, But I... also, this, like, Wikipedia entrance says 33 slash 36. But I but think the common accepted is 33. Okay, not 23. Not 23. So, okay, 26. What's 26? 27 is the 27 club. Or is it 26? No, it's 27. Uh, 26 is... I got nothing. 26. No, I, I also have nothing. <laughs> so as we were getting ready to hit record... Yes. Sometimes we miss some good stuff in the pre-record. The pre-banter banter. Kirsten was asking how her mic sounds and how her levels sound. And I said the weirdest, <laughs> it, it makes total sense. But the weirdest construction of a sentence was, you sound good in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it would have been less weird if it was ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just all weird. <laughs> but the singular in my ear. I just don't, I still don't feel good about it. I'm still reeling from that <laughs> sentence. Yeah, it's like vaguely pervy, but not really, because it doesn't make sense, but strange nonetheless. Well, vaguely, vaguely pervy. <laughs> uh, I was at the drive through to a Checkers, if you know that restaurant, also known as Rallies, depending on what part of the country you're in. Listener, I'm not a soda drinker. I just, it's not for me. I I don't dislike soda. I, I probably like it too much, which is why I don't <laughs> drink it. Um, but I ordered like a sandwich and fries and no drink. And the woman, like, coming through the, the weird muffled speaker said to me, Are you sure you don't want to wet your throat? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I will not I either. <laughs> I will not either. <laughs> now I have to lean back for my mic because I'm laughing so hard. Oh, my God. That is gross. 
that is a completely true story and i had no i was flabbergasted <laughs> and it was just like uh, no Did you just speed away <laughs> i would have just driven off <laughs> So I don't know her. I don't know what she's been through in her life. <laughs> but that will live with me forever. I mean, throat is a gross word, really. Like, people get all upset about moist, and I have no problem with moist, but throat? Mm-mm. This is a weird conversation that you and I might have had before. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the word moist. Yeah. Like, first of all, you don't use it sexually, which to me is kind of the vibe I get as to why people think it's gross. Yeah. Uh, it, and like... Like you, no one has ever said moist panties to me outside of talking about how gross those two words are. Like... Yeah. Never has anyone naturally referred to anything sexual as moist. And if you want to know what's weird and unnatural, it's like, oh, I love this cake. It's so damp. <laughs> mm, this cake is so wet I know. like that's gross when I... <laughs> hot take you heard it here first <laughs> but for sure i mean moist makes me think of cake and cake is delicious end of yeah. story <laughs> cake is first thought for the word moist for me as well and then the second is moisture which yeah. is also good literally fine skin can be moist it can be dewy it can be yes hydrated oh, yeah, I put moisturizer on every day yeah no i have no problem with moist and i also think it sounds nice the sound of the word is also nice to me independent from its meaning moist 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 <laughs> so we have triggered someone so hard <laughs> throat and then this the saying full-throated uh no throat doesn't necessarily get me i think because i've lived my entire life saying the sentence i have a sore throat (laughs) because i got strep throat like one or two times a year every year of my life i mean that feels like the one exception it should only ever be used to say sore throat but no. It should never be used to say wet your throat. <laughs> oh my god, that's so gross. But that now makes the only me thing. Oh, you go. It makes me think of the other night my husband and I were watching um I don't even remember and even if I did I shouldn't say cuz this might give away a plot point, but we were watching a show and a character was killed by having their throat slit supposedly in the style of venezuelans gangs yeah okay and so we're watching it and he said to me because my husband's also a weirdo if they were in colombia how would they have killed him and i said obviously colombian necktie tongue out and he like was so like he fell in love with me all over again in that (laughs) moment (laughs) gave me the fist bump the whole it was a very sweet romantic moment over slit throats so romantic (laughs) you know when you just you find your person (laughs) yeah meanwhile i'm just watching tv alone (laughs) (laughs) 
that's all I've been doing after work. Dollface season two came out, and I just loved it. I haven't even heard of it. Uh, Kat Dennings, mm. Brenda Song. Oh yeah, I don't think I don't think I knew the name of it, but I think I was. Did you watch about Crazy Ex Girlfriend? Oh. I was very triggered by that because I'm sure that there are several people out there who would describe me with those words. <laughs> and so I'm personally attacked by the title of that show and I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> if you must know the full unvarnished truth. <laughs> so the way I'm internalizing this conversation, not only is Kirsten married, she's had multiple relationships <laughs> and I'm so single. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, by choice until good old COVID came along. Yeah, freaking COVID. You're choosy and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Until COVID comes along. I gotta find my person. You just need someone who wants to hermit out with you. But I really like Dollface. (laughs) Nice little transition there. No, there was a season two because mm. season one came out in like 2019. Mm, yeah. And then season two just appeared in 2022. With no fanfare. Just. But it was great. It was like Crazy Ex Girlfriend. So you don't have that reference point, but to a listener who's maybe seen that and not Dollface, you would probably like it. Mm. Fair, fair, fair. Not everybody can be somebody's Crazy Ex Girlfriend. Oh, you know the thing I'm also hooked on? Yes. And I might have said this in a previous episode, Next Level Chef. No, you haven't, and I haven't heard of that one either. Yeah, boy loves cooking shows. Yeah. I mean, they're great. This is a Gordon Ramsay show, and the drama. It is so dramatic, but there's three chefs. Gordon's Mm -hmm. one of them. And there are three kitchens, one on top of the other. Like, there's an elevator. It's, it's like, a huge set. And the top kitchen is, like, a professional kitchen. (laughs) The middle kitchen is, like, a moderately good kitchen. And the basement kitchen is a (laughs) hellhole. Meaning, like, in its setup or in who they put in it? In its setup. Okay. Like... It's like shitty appliances, shitty pots and pans. Got and it. so based on your performance, you get ranked as to what level kitchen you deserve to cook in. And then, but all the dishes compete equally. And not only that, but the ingredients are on a moving platform that starts in the top kitchen. And you've got like, 30 seconds to run to this platform and grab ingredients and then the middle kitchen gets to pick and the basement kitchen gets the leftovers is this a metaphor for american capitalism (laughs) (laughs) yeah probably in some way (laughs) it's such good tv i love it so much wow i haven't seen it i don't love him but you know you never know i might stumble across it one day and Watch on your recommendation. Have you watched Yellow Jackets? There's a hurdle of downloading a free trial of Showtime <laughs> that I still have not Are you crossed. for real right now? 
I'm so sorry. I even thought about last night. Should I do it? Because I know we're going to record. <laughs> I know Kirsten's going to hassle me tomorrow. But you know how terrible my memory is. By the time you get around to watching it, I'm going to have to rewatch it because I won't remember it. Mm. That's unfair to me. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> Although I wouldn't mind watching it again. It's so good. There was a tweet that I took a screenshot of that sort of speaks to my love of cooking shows mm-hmm. that said... I would watch Euphoria if it didn't have drugs and if they all got along and they all had to bake three things a week to impress the judges and try to get Star Baker. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes, when I was pregnant with my first child, I really discovered, and I, I mean, I'm saying that like tongue in cheek, I obviously knew that it existed, but I kind of discovered for myself Food uh, Network and I got really into Chopped. And oh, so <laughs> my first pregnancy was really hard. I mean, not like, um, you know, Kate Middleton hard, but like it was really hard and I just would come home from work and I was exhausted and I felt like crap. And um, there was a two week period where my husband was away on a training. And so I laid on our futon couch and the whole week I would I would chip away at an extra large cheese pizza that I would get from the pizza, (laughs) the pizza parlor next door while watching people cook like elaborate, delicious dishes unchopped, just like nibbling on my one slice of cheese pizza that I would give myself each day. (laughs) (laughs) Chopped activates something, an unreal part of my brain that's like... I can criticize them even though I would have absolutely no idea what to do. (laughs) Where like they'll make a choice and I'm just like, I can't believe you made this stupid choice. (laughs) And at the same time, there's no way in hell I could make a single dish. (laughs) Out of these random things. Mm -hmm. I know. Well, my favorite thing to do when I'm feeling low is to watch Nailed It with my kids and have my oldest one say to me, Mom, you could do so much better. Oh my gosh, you would you would do so well on this show. You couldn't even go on this show because you would be too good. And I'm like, yes, you, you are correct. <laughs> I also love Nailed It. Oh my God, Nicole. Nicole, let's be friends. Nicole, be a guest on our show. I love you. Their refusal to or read an ingredient or use measuring utensils <laughs> is so unhinged. <laughs> awesome i love that show speaking of drama Mm -hmm. there's a lot of drama in this case yes today's case does have a lot of drama and acting official acting it's it's a i mean we say it every time it's a it's a tough one are we ready to just jump right in i think so okay well in another one of our very strange coincidences and we we truly do not plan this, and we've had several of these. We plan our episodes, obviously, weeks in advance. And as I started preparing for this one, I discovered that the subject of today's episode was actually born today. Today would have been her 62nd birthday. And I am talking about Dorothy Ruth Hoogstraten who was born in Vancouver, Canada, to Dutch immigrants, Simon and Nellie. 
And the model and actress who became known publicly as Dorothy Stratton was the first of three children. She grew up in Coquitlam, which is a quiet community east of Vancouver that you may remember if you listened to episode 21. We talked a little bit about it then. And she grew up there with her parents, her younger brother, John, and her baby sister, Louise. And by Dorothy's account, she was a shy and pretty naive girl. She lived with her family on a farm, and her focus was school, where she got straight A's, and a part-time job she had at Dairy Queen, where she worked throughout her teen years. It was at this after-school job, though, that she met the person who would derail this peaceful small-town life, and his name was Paul Snyder. In 1978, Paul Snyder was a 26-year-old, blundering, low-level criminal. He had grown up in a rough East Vancouver neighborhood and dropped out of school in the seventh grade when he began fending for himself. In his later teen years and early 20s, he was self-conscious about his appearance and he took up lifting weights along with meticulous grooming habits and flashy clothes to craft a persona and style that papered over to his insecurities. With an education that ended in seventh grade, many professional paths were not open to Snyder, but he found moderate success as a promoter at car shows and other side hustles. But the lifestyle he had built for himself and the one he aspired to beyond that required an abundance of money, more than a promoter at expos could ever reasonably expect to make. So at some point in the early 70s, Snyder began trafficking women. In his black Corvette, mink coat, and blinged out Star of David medallion, he became known as the Jewish pimp in his neighborhood. Despite his desire to live the high life, Snyder didn't quite have what it took to be a successful criminal in the more hardened gang circles of East Van. After an especially big loss to loan sharks, Snyder was reportedly dangled by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel. Shortly after this, Snyder left town. He set up shop again in Los Angeles, where he was drawn to, you know, what so many who moved to Los Angeles are drawn to glamour, power, stardom, but Snyder just wasn't very good at being a scumbag. His trafficking enterprise wasn't making him the money he craved, and he had no success getting access to the Hollywood circles he wanted to join. In 1977, he returned to East Vancouver, apparently with the intention of going straight, though not much is known about what he did professionally during this time. In early 1978, he and a friend stopped into a fast food restaurant in East Van for dinner, a Dairy Queen, in case you're wondering. Although he was no longer trafficking women, Snyder still saw women as objects to be used for his benefit. So that night when he saw Dorothy Hoogstraten behind the counter at Dairy Queen, I think it's fair to say he got the proverbial dollar signs in his eyes. He actually said to his friend at the time, quote, that girl could make me a lot of money. Dorothy, still just a senior in high school, had the double charm of being both beautiful and entirely unaware of her beauty. She was smart, but lacking in street savvy. Unlike Snyder, who wasted no time and reportedly asked Dorothy for her number that very night. Snyder was uneducated and by all accounts, fairly unlikable, but he had a way of charming women. 
He lavished Dorothy with attention and gifts and took her out on the town. He offered her a window into a world that, although large parts make-believe, it appealed to Dorothy. Over the next year, he slowly groomed her in the way that so many predators do, and that he had done so many times before. But with Dorothy, he seemed to recognize her huge potential as a commodity. So the grooming was slower and more subtle. When he felt the time was right, he bought Dorothy some beautiful, sexy clothes, and he scheduled a photo shoot for her. Just a normal photo shoot. Some months later, though, he suggested another photo shoot with tasteful nudes to be taken. Snyder had his sights on Playboy, and most immediately the $1,000 finder's fee given to those who, quote, discovered, quote, playmates. And I say quote because I hate both of those words. Um, But there was a finder's fee at that time for people who found untapped talent um, and referred them to Playboy. In his mind, Dorothy could be a foot in the door to bigger things. Snyder sold the idea of Hollywood and stardom to Dorothy, and she worked to overcome her intense natural shyness. Dorothy was 18, but still under the age of consent in Canada to pose nude, so Snyder persuaded Dorothy's mother to sign the release. That year, she posed for two shoots, one with a German photographer and another with a man named Ken Honey, who already had established connections to Playboy. The Honey shots were sent to Playboy, and in August 1978, Dorothy was flown to LA for a test shoot. The test photos were even better than Dorothy could have hoped, and she quickly became a finalist for the role of 25th anniversary playmate, which was a thing, in January 1979. Dorothy wasn't selected for that gig, but she was named Playmate of the Month for August 1979, which was a very big deal in the 70s, and it's hard to kind of convey that in a media landscape where there weren't, you know, 80,000 different magazines and still only a handful of channels on television, getting selected as Playmate of the Month was a, was a very big deal. Snyder immediately flew to LA and proposed to Dorothy at the end of 1978. They rented an apartment in West LA and Dorothy began working at the Century City Playboy Club. She also landed an agent around that time and started booking steady stream of modeling jobs and walk-ons in movies and TV shows. As Dorothy's star continued to rise, Snyder's dealings returned to his roots. He promoted male dancers and wet t-shirt contests. If Dorothy was big time, he was the epitome of small time, which began to cause friction for the couple. Snyder was controlling and jealous. He manipulated Dorothy emotionally by reminding her that he discovered her. He called their relationship a, quote, lifetime bargain, end quote. Under the influence of this abuse, Dorothy ignored the advice of basically everyone who knew her and reluctantly married Snyder in June 1979. By the end of that year, Dorothy had landed two huge gigs that poised her for legitimate stardom. First, she was named Playboy's 1980 Playmate of the Year. And she was also chosen for a supporting role in her first big budget film to be directed by indie darling Peter Bogdanovich. 
As the Playboy organization started gearing up the publicity machine around Dorothy's big get, she prepared to go to New York for the filming of her next movie. Although things were rocky between them, Snyder wanted to join Dorothy in New York, but she recognized that his controlling behavior and the near constant fighting between them at that point could really hurt the movie and her career. To help shield Dorothy from him, Bogdanovich closed the set of the movie to only cast and crew, and Snyder finally agreed to stay behind in LA. While filming in New York during the early spring of 1980, Dorothy and Bogdanovich began an affair. In April of that year, she returned to LA to prepare for a press tour for Playmate of the Year. The official announcement took place at the Playboy Mansion on April 30th, and Dorothy appeared on The Tonight Show later that evening. She was really at the gates of huge superstardom. The next day, she left for a two-week Canadian tour, making a detour to New York first to see Bogdanovich. Like others in her life, Bogdanovich encouraged her to divorce Snyder, both for her own well-being and because he wanted to pursue a public relationship with Dorothy. She reportedly left New York conflicted about how to move forward, but she wrote a letter to Snyder asking him for more freedom in their marriage, which predictably triggered a vicious outburst from Snyder over the phone. When Dorothy reached the end of her publicity tour in Vancouver, she was scheduled to have several days off with her family before returning to filming in New York. Snyder showed up unannounced and uninvited in Vancouver and coerced her into several appearances at local clubs, which he used as his personal ATM. During this time in Vancouver, Dorothy reportedly offered to give up her career and move back to Canada with Snyder as husband and wife. Of course, Snyder didn't just want Dorothy. He wanted her and the life he expected for himself as her husband. He declined her offer apparently not wanting to be a house husband in Coquitlam. And he returned to LA when she flew to New York. During the last weeks of filming, Dorothy started distancing herself from Snyder by not taking or returning his calls. At the end of June, 1980, Dorothy sent Snyder a letter stating they were physically and financially separated. By this time, Snyder was desperate. He didn't have a green card or a work permit he had been living off of Dorothy's earnings. She had gotten a work visa with the help of the Playboy organization. So his entire Hollywood dream was crashing around him. And he made the leap from abusive asshole to full-on crook and stalker. He drained their joint bank account and sold Dorothy's belongings, including many of the prizes she had received for being named 1980's Playmate of the Year. He hired a PI to follow Dorothy in New York, and confirm his suspicions that she was having an affair with Bogdanovich. After Dorothy wrapped filming in New York, she and Bogdanovich took a vacation to the UK. And when they returned to LA two weeks later, she moved into his mansion in Bel Air. Snyder still had some hope at this point that he could convince Dorothy to come back to him. And on August 8th, she met with him in their former home in West LA. To his disappointment, if not surprise, Dorothy stuck to her decision to finalize their separation and move towards divorce. Little did she know that Snyder was already around the bend. 
He had been staking out Bogdanovich's mansion and had borrowed a handgun from a friend. The following week, around noon on August 14, 1980, Dorothy went to her old home one last time to discuss a financial settlement. She took with her over $1,000 in cash that she planned to use as a down payment on the agreement she hoped to complete with Snyder. But sometime between noon and 8 o'clock that night when Snyder's roommates returned home from work, Snyder had shot Dorothy point-blank in the face with a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun he purchased from a private seller the day before. At some point after murdering Dorothy, Snyder turned the gun on himself. They were both found nude in the bed they had previously shared. I understand how stupid it is to say, like, not all men. But I say that to then say, don't you just fucking hate men? (laughs) Like, just kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I read a reference that when he had gotten the gun and when Bogdanovich and Dorothy returned to the States that first night they were back, he went and he staked out the house and he was planning on, on shooting anyone he saw, but no one came out. And so then he wandered off into a Canyon in the, in the Hollywood Hills and with the plan of, of killing himself, but for whatever reason, and as is so often the case with these kinds of crimes, they don't, which makes it kind of all the worse because it it feels like it came this close to not happening. But yeah, yeah. And this one, it just, you know, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna talk about the culture side of this in a bit, but it, it's such a waste of life and of talent and you know she was only 20 at this point so even though she had been in several movies and she had already had you know a career that a lot of people would would really love to have she was still a baby I mean she was 20 20 you know and he exploited the shit out of her for years yeah forced her into this I mean yeah, this is this is one of the th- types of cases that just gets my blood boiling. Yeah. How it's so stupid to say how dare he, but how dare he? Mhm. Just a piece of shit. If there's a hell, he better be there. Yeah, absolutely. And this one it's so hard to tell. I mean, there, he was definitely jealous, but the sources that I read, I never really got a huge sense that he loved her. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, right? Because he murdered her. But it always seems to have been an arrangement to him. I mean, I do think there was some sexual possessiveness, Mm -hmm. but, you know, she, according to reports, offered to go and be his little housewife in Canada, and that's not what he wanted, you know? I think it was always the money, fame, and power. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a bad one, and it's always sad. What is extra sad, I feel like, is this is still happening all the time. You know, this is one of the first cases that really caught the public's attention of a stalker kind mm-hmm. of crime. I mean, he was he was in her inner circle, so it's not a stranger stalker. 
but this is one of the first, at least in my memory, this happened when I was a child, but it, it was such a big thing. I knew of it. And it's one of those first cases that really shone a light on this thing that has been happening since the beginning of time. Yeah, and it's clearly not a one-to-one, but we're watching a heinous thing right now with Kim and Kanye. Yeah, yeah, it feels like a lot of parallels for sure. That's just... And there's room in the conversation for his mental illness, but that is certainly a piece of a conversation and not a conversation starter or stopper. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, someone doesn't have to be as pure as the driven snow to not deserve to be stalked and abused and harassed and terrorized. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think now looking back from how many years now, 40 years beyond this crime, we see it for what it is, an innocent 20-year-old girl. At the time, I do think there were hints of victim blaming that, well, you know, she went to Hollywood and she got naked and what did she expect? You know, I don't know that anybody kind of came out and said that, but that was definitely the vibe of it through the 80s. It was kind of, you know, everybody wanted to talk about it, but nobody wanted to talk about it. And she was Mm -hmm. kind of tainted because she, you know, had posed naked and, and of course, I mean, looking at Playboys from the 70s and 80s now is, I mean, you know, it seems almost juvenile in its level of innocence compared to porn and yeah. and things that we see on Instagram now, you know, but definitely there was some of that then. And, and I think that's, that's just a common tactic of the patriarchy to make these things seem less heinous. Yeah, she's one of those women. Exactly. She made a choice like getting naked so I can not feel the same level of sympathy. Mm -hmm. And that age old kind of thing where, well, you know, if you look like that and you get naked, you can't expect men to not go crazy, you know, which is Mm -hmm. crazy in itself. But yeah, it feels as relevant as ever. You know, and that's part of what makes it so sad is that a case like this, you would hope, would be a watershed moment that would help society change itself uh, to protect women from situations like this. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And we know that. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting in, in reading it. There was something special about her that people were just really drawn to and everyone commented on it. You know, I think it's easy to look at photos and we'll share on our socials uh, photos of her now. And, you know, she reflects a beauty of a time gone by and her styles are, are different from what we would see as beautiful now. But, you know, I think it is that kind of innocence that she had in the vulnerability that made her a target for someone like Snyder. Um, yeah. But also, you know, she was smart and she was sincere and she she just had qualities that I, I think everyone agreed were going to catapult her to a level of stardom that, you know, is comparable to a Marilyn or, you know, one of the one name superstars that we know. Well, I guess segueing into the culture side, this case really was a, a perfect example of 
what I love about this podcast. Owning up to my own lack of knowledge, maybe I had heard about this case in passing, but I did not know it. And then in my research, I learned that I was deeply familiar with some of the culture that was inspired by her, Mm -hmm. specifically in the world of music. Mm -hmm. But before I get to that, I first wanted to talk about her last film. It was released after her death in August 1981. The romantic comedy They All Laughed, which was written and directed by Bogdanovich, had its U.S. release. Unfortunately, it had a disappointing limited run in a handful of theaters in the Southwest, the upper Midwest, and the Northeast. And then it was kind of quietly withdrawn. Upset that what would have been his only project with Stratton didn't have a nationwide release and determined that her last screen performance have a chance to be seen by a broader audience, Bogdanovich bought the theatrical rights to the picture. Out of his own pocket, he paid for a re-release of They All Laughed in nearly a dozen large markets across North America, beginning in late 1981 and rolling into the following year. Despite generally favorable reviews and strong attendance in some theaters, Bogdanovich ultimately sank more than $5 million, his entire net worth at the time, into this project to properly promote and distribute the movie and rescue Stratton's film legacy. Unfortunately, the film only made $1 million in ticket sales, and Bogdanovich declared bankruptcy in 1985. In the process, he lost his L.A. home where Stratton had lived for the last few weeks of her life. And speaking on these times, Bogdanovich said, quote, It was a nightmare. Dorothy was murdered and I went crazy. I decided I would buy the film back from Fox and I lost my shirt distributing it myself, which was insanity. Unfortunately, nobody stopped me. So it didn't get great distribution because you can't self-distribute. It's impossible. For example, we played 15 weeks at the Music Hall in Beverly Hills. It was a huge success. We got a great theater in Westwood and it broke all the records. And they pulled it right out because Paramount wanted the theater for Reds. End quote. So, a pretty sad legacy in that front. Another interesting tidbit, Bogdanovich says Frank Sinatra let him have the rights to several of his songs for a cheap price because Sinatra felt sorry for him after Stratton's murder. Looking at the movie industry at the time, they all laughed, along with Heaven's Gate, Cruising, and One for the Heart, They're regarded as the end of the new Hollywood period and the director-driven studio films of the 1970s. Since the very public failures of these four films, Hollywood studios rarely allow directors to control the films they finance. So So, interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's had a profound impact on the Hollywood movie-making industry. Yeah, yeah. But despite all of that, They All Laughed has been seen really in a new light. It's been recognized by filmmakers, critics, and others as being one of Bogdanovich's best films. Among those who have praised the film are Quentin Tarantino, who declared the film one of the 10 best movies ever made, and Mm -hmm. Wes Anderson, who called it his favorite Bogdanovich film and even appeared in the 25th anniversary DVD release. Wow. I might have to watch it now. I mean, I'm, I'm confessing I, I didn't. Sometimes I will watch in advance and I kind of had the intention to and I didn't, but I think I'll have to. I, I love The Last Picture Show, but 
it's hard yeah. to imagine one surpassing, but apparently. Yeah, I, there is, I mean, people did like it who saw it. It was just the self-financing nightmare and, you know, the control that the studios had for their other films. So it's it's really interesting seeing this legacy. So speaking on that, Bogdanovich still speaks very highly of the film. In 2011, he said, quote, It was a very loving picture. It was the happiest time of my life. I look back on it now, and it's been like 30 years or so. It was definitely the high point in my life, end quote. Mm. Now, understandably, Bogdanovich had more to say about this case. In August of 1984, four years after Dorothy's death, the book The Killing of the Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton, 1960 to 1980, was released. The Killing of the Unicorn is in part a biography of Stratton, a memoir of Bogdanovich's affair with her, and a scathing feminist attack on Hugh Hefner, his playboy philosophy, and the hedonistic sexual mores he celebrated in his magazine. Mm-hmm. So I found in my research that it's generally agreed that the most controversial part of the book is the director's claim that Hefner had sexually assaulted a then 18-year-old Stratton in August of 78. Mm-hmm. According to Bogdanovich's allegations, the sexual assault occurred while the two were alone in a secluded area of the Playboy Mansion at the end of Stratton's first day of posing for the magazine's photographer. Among the other allegations that Bogdanovich made in his book, the most significant are... First, that Stratton had not married Snyder out of love, but rather used her marriage as an excuse to block the advances of Hefner, who Bogdanovich claimed pursued Stratton as a sexual partner after the purported assault. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second, that Stratton loathed nude modeling and dealing with Playboy in general and only tolerated the humiliating work in order to promote her acting career. And third, that Hefner was responsible in part for enabling Snyder's killing rage when he was banned from entering the Playboy Mansion just days before the murder. Mm. So Bogdanovich's underlying assertion for the last charge is that Snyder was banned because Hefner hated him. In his defense, Hefner explained that the purpose of the ban was to encourage Stratton and Bogdanovich to appear at the mansion as a couple. All of that said, nearly every review of The Killing of the Unicorn in the U.S. press was negative. While few objected to Bogdanovich's attacks on Hefner and Playboy, many were skeptical of his newfound feminism, pointing out, for example, that he seemed, quote, oblivious to his own sexist susceptibility to the whore Madonna complex in his view of women, end quote. And, I mean, it should be noted that he was 42 when they got together. Yeah. Ugh, gross. Yeah. A 20-year-old is a baby. Mm. So a review that appeared in the Chicago Tribune, for instance, had its tone concisely summarized in the blunt headline, quote, shabby little shocker, end quote. Film critic Roger Ebert writing for the crosstown Chicago Sun-Times, managed to express sympathy for Bogdanovich and the tragedy of Stratton's death, but was no less critical, stating that he couldn't understand why Bogdanovich felt the need to write the book. In an article that appeared shortly after the murder, Hefner, who was 33 years older than Stratton, used the word friendship to describe his relationship with her and was said to see himself as a father figure to the playmate. 
the image that Hefner presented to the public as a supportive, benevolent, paternal figure to Stratton was emphasized the following spring when Playboy published her biography in its May 1981 issue. It was reported that Hefner had personally supervised the editing of the article. And then in 85, when asked again about his relationship with Stratton after the release of The Killing of the Unicorn, Hefner did concede to a crucial detail that lay at the heart of Bogdanovich's allegation. Hefner admitted that several weeks after Stratton first arrived in Los Angeles, the two had taken a nude soak in the jacuzzi on the Playboy Mansion grounds, the place where Bogdanovich claims the sexual assault occurred. You know, that thing you do with your daughter figure, nude hot tubbing. (laughs) Which is, I mean, ridiculous. Of course, we know now when, you know, he's the age of his wife's, like he could be his wife's great grandfather. I mean, he's dead now, but at the end of his life, his wife was Mm -hmm. a child, you know. And in that same interview, while allowing that they had hugged, quote, hugged in the jacuzzi, Hefner denied having forced himself on Stratton. He also denied, despite his reputation, that he had ever so much as made a pass at her, suggesting that his sexual interest in Stratton ended in the jacuzzi after learning that she expected to become engaged to her boyfriend. And this conversation would have occurred approximately two months before Hefner had even met Snyder. So... A lot of holes. Mm. And needless to say, Hefner, straight up creep. Mm. I don't know enough about him to corroborate the statement, but I stand by the fact that he is a creep. Or yeah. was a creep, whatever. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of creeps, <laughs> Hefner retaliated by accusing Bogdanovich of seducing Stratton's younger sister, Louise, shortly after the murder when she was 13. And while Bogdanovich aggressively denies that allegation, on December 30th of 1988, at 49 years old, he married 20-year-old Louise, sparking a tabloid frenzy. So disgusting. Barf. It makes me feel so bad for Dorothy. All of these men in her life are disgusting. Yeah. And so one final piece on the bogdanovich slash they all laughed saga since day one yesterday that's confusing but it's a title (laughs) of a documentary (laughs) about the making and cultural importance of bogdanovich's film which includes interviews with the director and his remembrances of stratton and that premiered in 2014 to critical acclaim Mm -hmm. but looking at the other pieces of culture inspired by the case We also have 1981's made-for-TV movie Death of a Centerfold, the Dorothy Stratton story, which starred Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, New York Times critic John J. O'Connor praised the movie, writing, quote, The movie works remarkably well in building a dramatic momentum. Jamie Lee Curtis's Dorothy is a thoroughly understandable, if not sympathetic, figure, and Bruce White's is extraordinary, end quote. People magazine also praised the film, writing, quote, Jamie Lee Curtis is just right as Stratton, and Bruce White's is a standout as her ex, end quote. So fairly well received, especially for a made-for-TV movie. Next, we have 1983's Star 80, a film written and directed by Bob Fosse, which itself was adapted from the Pulitzer Prize-winning Village Voice article, Death of a Playmate, by Teresa Carpenter. Which, as we prepared for this episode, I inexplicably kept calling Star 82. (laughs) (laughs) So close. (laughs) Uh, 
adding another 80 into the mix. The movie didn't make a ton of money, but it does have an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. And Mariel Hemingway, who played Dorothy, and Eric Roberts, who played Snyder, both received praise for their portrayals. And on that awards front, Roberts won the Boston Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor and was nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor Motion Picture Drama. Fosse was also nominated for the Golden Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival, and Star 80 marked Fosse's final film as a director before he passed away in 1987. And then, just as a fun bit of trivia, (laughs) on an episode of The Late Show with Joan Rivers, Roger Ebert said that Robert should have been nominated for an Academy Award, coining the phrase, quote, Star 80 Syndrome, end quote. And he said that Hollywood will not nominate an actor playing a creep, no matter how good the performance is. Oh, interesting. So that's changed now, but I guess in the world of 1987, it was a little bit different. Yeah. So that's your uh, cocktail party banter (laughs) there. Uh, Lastly, Dorothy's also been mentioned in or helped inspire several songs, all featured on our Most Foul Music Spotify playlist. The first is 1983's The Best Was Yet to Come by singer-songwriter Brian Adams, which Adams co-wrote with Jim Valance as a dedication to Dorothy Stratton. So lyrics to the song include, quote, I find myself thinking about yesterday when you were here and living in a dream. In the moment that it takes, you find you made your first mistake, like the setting sun. You turn around, it's gone. Just a small town girl who had made it, or so the story goes. She had it there, then it slipped away. Oh, and how was she to know? End quote. On his website, Jim Valance tells an interesting story about meeting Bogdanovich. So this is a direct quote from him. A few years after the song's release, by chance Adams and I found ourselves seated next to film director Peter Bogdanovich at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Peter had been dating Dorothy Stratton at the time of her death. Peter thanked us for writing The Best Was Yet to Come, and he told us how much the song had meant to Dorothy's family. End quote. Oh, that's interesting. But I hate that line, and and then it slipped away as if it was some kind of accident, you know, (laughs) or some kind of, oh, she messed it up and it slipped away. No, it was ripped away from her. Yeah. Yeah, and weirdly maybe this isn't adam's only work inspired by dorothy he also co-wrote with Lindsay mitchell of the canadian band prism the track cover girl for their greatest hits collection the song's dedicated to dorothy and features the lyrics quote i saw her picture in a magazine row blue eyes shining in the cellophane glow tonight she's given it all away she's all right my cover girl cover girl you've come a long way new mercedes in the driveway Oh, oh, she's just a small town girl at heart. Cover girl at such a damn waste. You are more than just a pretty face. I never thought I'd never see you again. I saw her picture in a magazine row. Blue eyes shining in the cellophane glow. Tonight she's giving it all away. She's all right, my cover girl. I saw her picture on the six o'clock news. Just read about the cover girl blues. End quote. Ugh. There's something really creepy about songs about women in magazines. <laughs> yeah. But it it might make it less creepy that they knew her. <laughs> they did? So speak 
Speaking about Dorothy, Prism bass player Al Harlow said, quote, I recall seeing Dorothy's future husband Snyder around Oil Can Harry's nightclub in the 1970s and later heard that the lovely girl who worked at the Dairy Queen on Hastings Street in Vancouver's East End was having considerable success. When we finally met Dorothy at the Prism Gold Record Ceremony held at Bruce Allen's home in 1980, I noticed how she was surrounded by handlers. She seemed a calm amidst a storm. I managed to sit alone with her by an ocean view front window, and we chatted as two Vancouver kids would. But I had a strong sense to advise her to keep her eyes open and keep safe in the whirlwind of success, which I never actually spoke to her. I think of this every time I drive past the Dairy Queen, end quote. Mm. Yeah, that makes it less creepy. I mean, a little. Still not certain about Brian Adams. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And write two songs that... You know, it's like inciting incidents. You never know what's going to strike you in a Mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So another song inspired by Dorothy was Dead Meat by British rock band Bush. Lead singer Gavin Rossdale said that the song deals with the subject of revenge, saying, quote, I was inspired by a film entitled Star 80. It was based on Dorothy Stratton. It's about a girl who comes back down to earth to make someone pay for what she's been through. I wanted to write a song for people seeking revenge, end quote. Interestingly, Rosdale's ex-wife, Gwen Stefani, took a line from this song, and that line is, I'll burn before I mellow, from uh bush's song and responded to it in no doubt song ex-girlfriend singing quote you say you're gonna burn before you mellow i'll be the one to burn you end quote mm. <laughs> so was that it's the revenge theme yeah <laughs> and then lastly we have one of my go-to karaoke songs californication by the red hot chili peppers It was released as a single in June of 2000. It reached number 69 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, number 16 on the U.K. Singles Chart, and number one on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Tracks and Modern Rock Tracks Charts. Weirdly, and I don't know why I included this, but it also reached number one in Iceland. (laughs) (laughs) Just because. Just because. So Californication has remained one of the band's most popular hits and most performed live songs, appearing in almost every set list since its live debut and making it the band's third most performed song with over 500 performances. Mm. The song explores the dark side of Hollywood and the export of culture through the movie industry. The song also references topics like porn, plastic surgery, with pop culture references, including Kurt Cobain, David Bowie, the Beach Boys, Star Wars, Star Trek, and of course, Dorothy Stratton. And her reference is in the line, firstborn unicorn, hardcore, soft porn, calling back to the book title, The Killing of the Unicorn, and of course, her Playboy start. And with that, we have the extremely interesting pop culture legacy that this awful case leaves behind. Yeah, it it really is one of those cases that just, I don't know that I would call it outsized because that feels disrespectful to her. I mean, it's a terrible crime, so much lost potential, but it definitely extended beyond what some similar cases might have. And I think that is down to 
both these kind of unique combination of qualities that she had and also her relationship with Bogdanovich. You know, mm-hmm. he did a lot to whatever you think of, of his pursuing a 20 year old when he's in his forties, he did do a lot to preserve her legacy. It felt like he loved her, but then when I got to the information that he married her sister, also at 20, I was like, okay, there's something not right here. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he... I I don't know. I mean, part of what, what sparked the idea for this case w- with me was I was reading his obituary. He died recently, and I was reminded about their relationship, which I knew about, but I had forgotten... And yeah, it's strange, you know, he was married to a really wonderful writer, Polly Platt, who had a big hand in his early successes, his early movies. And during the filming of The Last Picture Show, he began an affair with Sybil Shepard and left his wife and married her. And so, I mean, he kind of has a history of being a dirtbag in relation to women. And like you said, that Madonna whore thing, which shows itself in his movies pretty apparently but it does seem like he loved her in his way but i did read in my research that dorothy's parents had split up i i guess you could call it or her father abandoned the family like depending on how you look at it yeah i i read it written each way um when she was still young and i think it left a void in in her life and her kind of makeup that maybe left her vulnerable and you know it's a cliche and a joke daddy issues and I love that you know young millennials and gen z is pushing back on that whole notion like why are we penalizing the women because the men were were terrible but I mean I think the phenomenon is real you know when when something goes wrong in that core relationship it can leave you know scars on on Mm -hmm. a woman and when after her death and after Louise married Bogdanovich, the dad or the stepdad, someone in her life in, in that kind of fatherly role came and said that Bogdanovich had seduced the mom and Louise, basically yeah. like seduced the mom into giving him access to Louise. Um, and so Louise actually filed suit against Bogdanovich. I mean, it was just a mess. Yeah. But something was not right, even after they were divorced. I mean, I think it's well known now in all of his obituaries, like at the time of his death, well after their divorce, he still lived with Louise and her mother. You know, unconventional to say the least and a little bit creepy for sure. Yeah. And definitely her connection to pop culture itself leads to some of this impact. Mm -hmm. It's not just a person that this same story happened to it's a celebrity yeah and you know we've talked about it before that perfect combination of just like like selena we talked about it a bit i think like she was obviously very successful in her own right in her own way but in terms of mainstream like white american consciousness she was right at that like point Mm -hmm. of about to blow up and i think dorothy was too yeah the reviews like she had lots of positive reviews for her acting it was i especially with her connections to bogdanovich as well i i don't think it's out of bounds to imagine that she would have had a a long film career yeah yeah for sure wow well with that 
we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Vowel. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostvowelpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.